Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Part 3, Among Friends. Chapter 59, the door opened and the jester Norbert stood there, bent over a bowl, picking his teeth with a hazel twig. His jaw dropped as if he had seen a ghost. Gads, Hugh, you come back after all. He grinned broadly, then shuffled up to me with that sideways gait of his. What a joy to see you, lad. And you, Norbert, I replied, embracing him with my good arm. Wounded again? You're like a human target, son, he cried. But come in. I'm glad to see you back. I want to hear it all. The jester yanked out a low stool for me to sit on. Then he poured a cup of wine and sat facing me. I can see in your eyes you've not come here with much cheer. So tell me, did you find her? What is the fate of your Sophie? I lowered my eyes from those of my friend. You are right, Norbert. It was just a dream to think she had somehow survived. I'm sure she's dead. He nodded, then leaned across and squeezed me in a fatherly way. A man is allowed to dream every once in a while. We little people live on it. I'm sorry for your loss, Hugh. Norbert shuddered, letting out a gravelly cough. You're ill? I asked with concern. Just under the weather, he waved me off. Too many years of crawling around with the beetles down here. He cleared his throat again. Tell me this. How did it go in court with Baldwin? Did you get the job? I could finally smile at something. I did, just as we planned. In fact, I think it was a success. I knew it, the jester leapt up. I knew you would be. I taught you well, boy, didn't I? Tell me. I have to know it all. Suddenly, the weariness in my body seemed to recede. My face blushed brightly with the memories of entertaining the court. I told him everything. How I had managed my way into the castle. How I had seized upon the moment to go before the court. The jokes I used. How I had managed my way into the castle. How I had seized upon the moment to go before the court. The jokes I use, how the dukes have sent away poor Palimpost. That old fart. I knew the sob was out of tricks. Norbert hopped around, cackling with delight. It served him well to be sacked. No, I protested. He turned out to be a friend. A true one. I continued my tale through my running with Norcross, how I had been set up, and how Palimpost, the very fool I shamed, had saved my life. So the goon still has some virtue in him. Good. There's a brotherhood of us, Hugh. I guess you're part of it now. He patted my shoulder warmly, then once more doubled over in the throes of a most horrible cough. You are sick, I said, leaning over, supporting him with my arm. The physician says it's just the bad air down here. Tells me I'm a miserable excuse for a man of mirth. But still, Hugh, maybe your return is well-timed. Why not stand in for me until I'm well? It's a plum job. I dragged my stool closer. Stand in for you? Here in Bore? And why not? You're in the trade now. A professional. Just try not to do it too well. I thought about the offer. I did need a place to be. Where else would I go? What else would I do? I did have friends here. Their trust was strong. And another aspect of the offer appealed to me, undeniably. I liked it. The crowds, the applause, the acclamation, this new pretext, I had liked it very much. 
I will stand in for you, Norbert, I said, holding his shoulder, but only until you recover. That's a promise, then. We shook hands warmly. I see you're still lugging that big stick around with you, and you still wear the guard, but you've lost your hat. My normal tailor was unable to dress me on such short notice. Not a problem, Norbert laughed. He shuffled over to his chest and tossed me a felt cap. It jingled. Bells. I know. But as they say, beggars can't be choosy. I placed the cap upon my head. I felt a strange sensation, my blood warm with pride. You'll knock him dead, lad. That I know for sure, the jester grinned. And I know for sure there's another here who will be most pleased to see you back. Chapter 60 I watched Emily from outside the sitting room before she had a chance to spy me. She was amid the other ladies-in-waiting, attending to their embroidery. Her blonde braid spilled out from under a white hood. Her little nose seemed as soft as a bud. I saw what I had known that first day, but looked beyond due to the nature of our friendship. Emily was beautiful. She was beyond compare. I winked at her from the doorway, flashing a smile. Her eyes stretched as wide as wildflowers blooming in July. Emily rose, placing her embroidery neatly down on the table, and with perfect politeness excused herself and came towards me. Her pace quickened as she did. Only in the hall, when she rushed up to me and grasped my hands, did she show her true delight. Hugh DeLuke, it's true. Someone said they saw you. You come back to us. I hope I don't wear out my welcome, my lady, and that you're not disappointed. She grinned. I'm most pleased. And look at you, still in your jester's garb. You look good, Hugh. The same you made for me, just a bit frayed. Norbert has taken ill. I promise I will stand in for her. Her eyes, vibrant and green, seem to illuminate the dark hall. I have no doubt we'll all be the merrier for it. But tell me, Hugh, your quest. How did it go? I bowed my head, not for a moment hiding my disappointment or true feelings. Emily led me down the hall, where no guards were posted and we were able to sit on a bench. Please, I can see you're sorely troubled, but I have to hear. Your plan was excellent. On the subject of my pretext, everything went well. I replaced the fool in Triel, gained access as we had spoken, and was able to snoop around. I did not mean our pretext, Hugh. I meant your quest. Your dear Sophie. What did you find? Tell me. <sighs> Ask my wife, I swallowed dryly. I am now sure that she is dead. The light in Emily's hopeful eyes began to dim. She reached out for my hand. I'm most sorry, Hugh. I can see how it saddens you. We sat there silently for a while. Then she noticed my arm. You're injured again. Just, just a bit. It's nothing. It's healing. I found the person who was responsible for Sophie and my son. I ended up having to face him off. Face him off? A look of concern flashed in her eyes. And the outcome? The outcome? I bowed my head again, then raised it with a slight smile. I am here. He is not. Her face lit up, and I am glad, and most glad to hear that she'll stay a while, too. She folded up my sleeve and studied the sword marks on my arm. This needs treatment, Hugh. You're always nursing me back to health, I said. 
I was surprised at how easily I fell into her care again, almost without trying. It felt good to be here. A calm spread over my face. But there is more I have to tell you, I'm afraid. This man I fought, he was a knight. More than a knight, in fact. He was Baldwin Shatlian. It ended up, in our squaring off, I killed him. Emily gazed intently at me. I have no doubt that what you did was right. It was, Lady Emily. I swear it. He murdered my wife and son, yet the man was a noble. And I... Is it not regarded as justice when one takes recompense for the loss of his property? Emily cut in. Or defends the reputation of his wife? For nobles, yes. I bowed my head again, but I fear there is no justice in this world that shines on a low-born man that kills a knight. Even if it's deserved. That may be, Emily nodded, but it will not always be. Her eyes met mine. You're always welcome here, Hugh. I will talk to Lady Anne. Instantly, I felt as if the heaviest weight had been lifted from my shoulders. How did I deserve such a friend? How in this one pure soul had all the boundaries and laws by which I had lived been set aside? I felt so grateful to have come here. There is no way for me to thank you, I clasped her hand. Then I realized my mistake, my forwardness, my stupidity. Her eyes drifted to my hand, but she made no move to take hers back. The Duke Shatland, you say? She smiled, finally. You may be low-born, as you say, Hugh DeLuke, but somehow your aim is remarkably high. Chapter 61 You were thoroughly misplaced, child, Anne scolded Emily later in her dressing room to stick your nose where you do. For such a pretty one, it always seems to end up where it's most unwelcome. Emily brushed her lady's long brown hair in front of the looking glass. Anne seemed noticeably out of sorts. In the past, Emily had always been able to soften her with a few well-placed assurances and affable cheer. Emily's free thinking had always been a source of discussion between them and, though her lady hid it, a bond. But not so now. Not since the word that Anne's husband was soon back from the crusade. I am no child, madam, Emily said back. Yet you act like one sometimes. You urge me to look the other way for this fool who admits to killing the chatlian of a duke who seeks refuge here. He does not come here to hide from justice, my lady, but because he feels among friends who understand what justice is. And what is this friendship worth to you, Emily? This friendship with a common scut who always finds his way back here when he's injured. It's worth the loss of our laws and custom. The knight was killed in a fair duel, madam. The man's beloved wife was abducted by him. What proof is there? Who pledges for this man? The baker? The smith? Who pledges for Baldwin, madam? Armed thugs? His cruelty and greed need no witness. Anne met Emily's gaze sharply in the mirror. A lord needs no pledge, child. There was an awkward silence between them. Then Anne seemed to soften. Look, Emily, you know that Baldwin is no friend to this court, but do not make me choose between your heart and what we know is the law. A lord manages his own vassals as he sees fit. Men have always shown greed, Anne continued. They spread your legs and plant their seed, then pick their nose on a pillow and fart. 
your common fool will prove no different. Anne turned and seemed to sense that she had hurt Emily. She held the brush and clasped Emily's hand. You must know, it will be my joy to shame Baldwin in my husband's absence. But your price is too high. Don't ask me to choose between cads, high or lowborn. Showing justice on this, my lady, is how you will choose. Anne's eyes hardened. Don't flaunt your fancy concepts of me, Emily. You have never had to govern. You were not subject to a man. You were still a guest at our court. Perhaps this time we sent you back? Back? Emily was startled. Fear shot through her. Anne had never threatened her before. This is an education, Emily, not your life. Your life is written. You cannot change it, no matter how strong your passions. My heart is not the issue, madam. He is just, I assure you. You do not know just, Anne snapped. You know only a dream. You are blind, child, and stubborn. So far, you have not found a husband here, despite the best efforts of some of our bravest knights. They are trumped up oxen and smell like them too. Their exploits mean nothing to me, less than nothing. And yet, this low-bred pup does. What makes you think you can expect more from him? You must stop this dalliance. Now. Emily stepped back, knowing she had taken it too far. She had offended Anne. Gradually, Anne seemed to soften. She reached for Emily's hand. Yet, she went on, you've never lacked the courage to stand up to me. Because I've always trusted you, my lady. Because you've always taught me to do what's right. You trust too much, I fear. Anne got up. I have given him my promise, madam. Emily bowed her head. Keep him here. I will not go further in the heart. If I did not press this to you, you would not be the wiser. Please, let him stay. Anne gazed at Emily, searching her eyes. She reached a tender hand to Emily's face. What has life done to you, my poor child, to have hardened you so against your own kind? I am not hardened, Emily replied, kneeling and placing her head upon Anne's arm. I only see that there's a world beyond. <sighs> Get up, Anne raised her gently. Your fool can stay, at least until Baldwin inquires of him. I hope, in Norbert's absence, that we'll find him a boon. He has learned well, my lady, Emily promised, cheered. It is what he learns from you that troubles me. This other world you speak of, it may seem real. It may stir your curiosity and your heart. But hear me, Emily. It will never be your home. A tremor ran through Emily. She rubbed her cheek against her mistress's hand. I know, my lady. Chapter 62 The next morning, I made my debut in front of the Lady Anne's court. I had only seen the great hall at Boray from behind Norbert's back on my first visit, studying his skills, watching him perform. Now, with his buttressed arches rising thirty feet tall and jammed to its hilt with colorfully dressed knights and courtiers, the hall looked more enormous and imposing than I ever could have imagined. My heart was pounding. Not only for the gigantic room and the simple fact that Triel was like a village compared to this, or for my new liege and the favor that must be won. 
but also because of whom I was replacing. Norbert was a jester of the highest rank. To fill in for him here, in front of the court, was an honor that touched me deeply. The arrival of the court did nothing to abate my nerves. A blast of trumpets announced a Lady Anne with her long silk train and line of ladies, Emily among them, bringing cushions and refreshments, attending her needs. Pages in green and gold overtunics announced the business of the day. Advisors flitted around, vying for Anne's ear. Scores of knights did not languish in their casual tunics as in Triel, but sat at formal tables, finally dressed in her colors of green and gold. That day, there was a minor dispute before the court, a bailiff and a poor miller arguing over the levy of his fife. As was the custom in towns everywhere, the bailiff felt the miller was holding out on him. I had seen this a hundred times in my village, and it was always the bailiff who won. Anne listened distractedly, but soon seemed to grow weary. In her husband's absence, she was forced to rule on such tiresome matters, and this was as mundane as business got. Anne's gaze began to wander. This bickering is a stuff of comedy, she said. Jester, this is your domain. What say you? Come out and rule. I stepped out from the crowd behind her chair. She seemed to regard me unexpectedly, as if surprised at the new face in the suit. You say it's my rule, my lady? I bowed. Unless you're as dull as they are, she replied. Mild laughter trickled through the room. I will not be, I said, calling to mind all the times I saw my friends cheated. But I must answer with my own riddle. What is the boldest thing in all the world? It is your stage, fool. Tell us, what is the boldest thing? A bailiff's shirt, my lady. For a class a thief by the throat most every day. A hush spread over the court, replacing the amused buzz. All eyes looked to the bailiff for his response. And fixed on me. Norbert informed me he was taking a leave, but he didn't inform me he was leaving his duties to such a rash wit. Come forward. I know you, do I not? I knelt in front of her and doffed my cap. I am Hugh, good lady. We have met once before, on the road to Triel. Monsieur Rouge, she exclaimed, her expression indicating she knew exactly to whom she spoke. You seem a little better patched together than when I saw you last. And you found a trade. When last seen, you had donned your armor and ridden off for some quest. My armor was only this. I motioned towards my checkered tunic. And my sword, this staff. I hope it was not too greatly missed. You are hard to miss, Monsieur. Anne said with a pinched smile, since you do not go away. Many of the ladies began to giggle. I bowed ceremoniously at her demonstration of wit. Norbert said I will find you to be a fitting replacement. And there is another at court who defends you well. And look how you perform here before our court with your first step and already soiled your boots. You take the miller's side on this? I side with justice, lady. I could feel the heat rising in the room. Justice? What would a fool know of justice? This is a matter of what is law and right. I bowed respectfully. You are the law here, my lady, and the judge of what is right. Was it not Augustine who said, Remove justice and what are kingdoms but gangs of criminals on a large scale? 
You know about kingdoms as well, I see, in your full and varied life. I motioned to the bailiff. Actually, it's criminals, I know. The rest was just a guess. Some laughter snaked around the court. Even Anne consented to smile. A jester who quotes Augustine. What sort of fool are you? A fool who does not know Latin, madam. It's just a greater fool. Again, a trickle of applause, some nods, and another smile from Anne. I was raised by Goliards, your grace. I know a lot of useless things. I sprang onto my hands, balanced myself in a handstand, and then slowly released onto one arm. From upside down, I added, and some useful enough, I hope. Anne gave a nod of approval. Useful enough, she applauded. So much so, bailiff, that I am forced to side with the fool here. If not by right, then surely by wit. Please forgive me. I'm sure next time the scale will tilt to you. The bailiff shot me an angry glance, then backed off and bowed. I accept, my lady. I pushed off and landed on my feet. So, boar slayer, Anne turned back to me. Your friends are right. Norbert has taught you well. You're welcome here. Thank you, madam. I won't disappoint. I felt expanded. I had performed in front of my hardest audience so far and succeeded. For the first time in a long while, I felt out of harm's way. I shot a wink at Emily. My body tingled with pride as she smiled back. At least until my husband returns, Anne added sharply. And I must warn you, his views of custom are quite different from my own. He is known to be much less charmed by a fool's knowledge of Latin than I. Chapter 63 The following days, I worked freely at the court, entertaining Lady Anne, reciting tales and chansons from my Goliard days, providing mock counsel when she called on me and needed a laugh. My trouble with Triel grew distant in my mind. I even found myself craving my new role and the power that came with it. The power of the lady's ear. A few times, I was able to poke fun at a situation and gently twist her into a certain mind, always in favor of the aggrieved party. I felt she listened to me, sought my views, however couched in jest they were, amid the clutter of her advisors. I felt I was doing some good. And Emily seemed pleased. I caught her approving eye amidst the other ladies in the waiting, though I did not see her alone after that first day. One day, at the end of court, Anne summoned me. Do you ride, Jester? I do, I answered. Then I'll set a mount. I want your presence on an outing. Be ready at dawn. An outing with the Duchess. This was an unusual honor, even Norbert said. All night I tossed on my straw mat. What would she want from me? Amid a spits of phlegm and coughing, Norbert chided me. Don't get too cozy in my hat. I will shortly be back. The following dawn, I was ready at the stables, expecting a coterie of fancily dressed courtiers. But it was clear from the start that this was not some idle jaunt in the country. Anne was dressed in a riding cloak, accompanied by two other knights that I recognized, her political advisor, Bernard DeVos, and the captain of her guard, a blonde-haired knight named Gillis. With her also was the Moor who had propped me up with the harness when they found me in the woods, and who never seemed to leave her side. The party was guarded by a detachment of a dozen additional soldiers. I had no idea where we were headed. 
The gates opened and we rode out of Boray at first light. A sliver of orange sky peeked over the hills to the east. Immediately, we took the road south. I rode behind the formation of nobles, just ahead of the rear guard. Anne was a steady rider, trotting capably above her white palfrey. Occasionally, she exchanged a few terse words with her advisors, but mostly, we rode in silence, at a quick pace. We did not rest until we hit a stream, an hour south. I was a little nervous. We were heading straight for Triel, Baldwin's territory. I was not guarded or watched, but a flicker of concern trembled through me. Why had Anne asked me on this journey? What if I was being returned to Triel? At a fork in the road, the party cut southwest. We were on roads I had never been on before, occasionally passing hilltops clustered with tiny villages. By midday, we had entered a vast forest, with trees so dense and tall they almost blocked out the sun. Gillis led the expedition. At one point, he announced, Our domain ends here, my lady. We are now in the Duchy of Triel. Yet still, we rode on. My blood quickened. I wasn't sure what was going on. I had an urge to run, but where? I would not get 50 yards if they wanted me caught. Anne trotted up ahead. I had to trust this woman. I dared not show my fear. Yet, every time I had placed my trust in the noble, I had ended up far the worst. Could they be betraying me now? Finally, I kicked my steed and caught up to Anne. I rode alongside her for a while, nervous, until she could see the question on my face. You want to know why I asked you along? Yes, I nodded. She did not answer me, but trotted on. To the sides, I could now make out farms and dwellings. There was a sign scratched onto a tree. St. Cecile. Our party slowed to a walk. Finally, Anne motioned for me. I rode up, fearing that any minute, Baldwin's soldiers might come out of the woods to murder me. Here's your answer, fool, she said with a taut face. If we encounter what I'm told we will in this village... I think on the way back, we will all be in great need of mirth. Chapter 64 I relaxed, but only for an instant. The first thing that hit me was the smell, the stench of putrefaction, the rot of death. Then, ahead, whistle of white smoke rose above the trees. The leaves themselves were singed with the stomach-turning char roasted flesh. My mind brought me back instantly. Civita. Anne rode ahead, seemingly unfazed by the repugnant stench. I felt no danger to myself now, only that this was something awful we were nearing. The road widened, a clearing, then a stone bridge. We were at the outskirts of a town. But there was no town. Only what had once been huts and other dwellings, their thatched roofs caved in with fire, the smoke from cinders still rising in the air and people sitting around numbly, blank expressions on their city faces, as if mimicking the still silence of the dead. We rode into the village. Every single dwelling seemed to have been burned to the ground. Most had tall stakes driven into the ground in front of them. On them, spitted, were charred mounds, unrecognizable. The strange mix of smells turned my stomach. Burned hair, flesh, blood. 
The stakes look like pagan warnings, gutted animals to ward off demons from the homes that were no more. What are they? Anne inquired as she trotted by. Gillis, the captain of the guard, sucked in a breath. They are children, my lady. The color drained from her face, and Anne pulled her mount to a stop. She leaned over and stared at the mounds, and for a moment I thought she would teeter. But then Anne righted herself. Her face became composed again. She called out firmly to the townspeople, What has happened here? No one answered. The people just stared. I actually feared someone might have taken out all of their tongues. The captain called. Lady Anne of Boire speaks to you. What has happened here? At that, the fiercest howl rang out from behind. All heads turned to see a large man clothed in a tattered hide hurtling towards us with an axe. When he was no more than a few feet away, a soldier took out his legs with a lance and the assailant crashed to the earth. Two other soldiers pounced on him immediately, one putting a sword to the neck of the fallen man and looking up to Anne for the word. A woman screamed and ran to him, but was held back. The man did not turn to her, just glared at Anne with grief-filled eyes. He has lost his son, a voice called out. His home. It came from a gaunt, white-haired man in blackened and tattered clothes. The soldier was about to kill the large man, but Anne shook her head. Let him be. The man was yanked to his feet. Anne's guards pushed him forcefully to his grateful wife, where he stayed, breathing heavily, without thanks. What has happened here? Tell me, Anne said to the white-haired man. They came in the night. Faceless cowards with black crosses. They hid under their masks. They said it was a purified town for God. That we had stolen from him. Stolen? Stolen what? Anne asked. Something sacred. A treasure. Something they cannot find. They tore every child from his mother. Put them on spits in front of our eyes. Set them aflame. Their cries still ring in our ears. I looked around. This was the work of Baldwin. I knew it. The same savage cruelty that had taken my wife tossed my son into the flames. Yet this carnage seemed even greater than Baldwin could be responsible for. Norcross was dead, but this hell continued. And what did they find, these killers? Anne asked. The man replied, ashen face. I do not know. They torched us and left. I'm the mayor of this town, the, the, the mayor of nothing now. Maybe you should ask Arnaud. Yes, ask Arnaud. Anne dismounted. She walked directly up to the mayor and looked in his eyes. Who is this Arnaud? The mayor snorted a disdainful blast of air. <laughs> Without replying, he began to walk. Anne set off behind, accompanied by her guards who ran ahead of her to clear the way. We wound through a devastated town, the stables leveled, smoking, reeking of mutilated horses, a mill more ash than stone, a wooden church slashed with blood, the only structure left standing. At a low stone hut, the mayor stopped. The entrance was smeared with blood, not randomly, but in large red crosses. A butcher house smell came from inside. 
Holding our breath, we stepped in and gasped. The place was ravaged. What scant furniture there was had been split like firewood, and the ground beneath it ripped up. Two bodies hung by their arms, a man and a woman, their torsos flayed of flesh. Beneath their dangling legs lay their severed heads. My body recoiled in horror. I could not breathe. I had seen these horrible things before. Heads severed and roasted, bodies stripped of skin. I had seen them, but I didn't want to remember. My mind hurtled backwards regardless. Nico. Robert. The bloodbath of Antioch. I turned away. Go ahead. Ask Arnod, the mayor smirked. Maybe he will answer your questions, Duchess. We stood in horror. Arnod was born here and always called it his home. He was the bravest man any of us knew, a knight at the court of Toulouse. Yet they carved him up like a pig. They cut out his wife's womb, looking for some treasure. Stolen from God, they said. He had just returned from fighting abroad. From fighting where? Gillis, the captain asked. I knew. I had seen such horror before. I knew, but I could not answer. The crusade, the mayor spat. Chapter 65 I walked from the hut and tried to clear the repulsive sights from my mind. I had seen it all before. Men and women hung and flayed, body parts scattered as if the murders meant nothing at all. Sivto. Antioch, the crusade, these riders in the dead of the night who wore no colors and would not show their faces, the towns burned, savagery, were these acts Baldwin's? Norcross was dead, could his men still be running free, terrorizing villages? What precious treasure did they seek? Put it together, I told myself, what does the puzzle signify? Why can't I solve it? The crusade. Suddenly, it resonated everywhere. Arnod had just returned from there. Adamar, too, whose horrible death I had heard of at Baldwin's court. Their villages were ransacked and destroyed, just like my inn. Dread shot down my spine. These faceless riders who killed with the savagery of Turks, were they the same ones who murdered my wife and child? Cold, clammy sweat clung to my back. It all began to fit. The killers wore no crests or markings, only a black cross. No one knew where they came from or what they sought. Then I remember something. Matthew had said that it was as if it were my home, our inn only, that the bastards were interested in. What did they want with me? During the long ride back, I kept to myself. I racked my brain. What did I have that could connect me with these killings? I tucked a few worthless baubles into my pouch. The old scabbard with the writing I found in the mountains? The cross I had pilfered from the church in Antioch? It didn't make sense. I watched Anne riding just ahead. Her face was tight and somber, as if she had wrestled with some inner turmoil. Something wasn't right. Why had we come out here? What had she needed to see? Then a chill ran through me. Anne's husband, the Duke, was returning any day from the crusade. Anne knew. Anne knew these atrocities were going on. My stomach went cold. All along, I was sure it was Norcross who had done these things to me as punishment for going on the crusade. 
Was it possible that it was Anne? Could it be that the answers I sought were not at Triel, but at Bore? I should not stay there any longer, I thought. There was a danger that I could not place. Fool, right up here, Anne called. Lift my spirits. Tell me a joke or two. I cannot, I replied. I pretended that the horrible sight had made me too sick. It wasn't far from the truth. I understand, Anne nodded. No, you do not, I said to myself. We rode the rest of the way back in silence. Chapter 66 The next few days, I kept my eye on Anne, trying to determine what connection she might have to the murdered knights and the killing of Sophie and Philippe. Her husband was returning in a matter of days, and all of Bore was in a state of anxiousness and preparation. Flags were hung from the ramparts. Merchants put out their best wares. The chattelin led his troops in their welcoming formations. Whom could I trust? I waited for Emily on Sunday morning as she emerged from the chapel with the other ladies in waiting. I caught her eye and lingered until the others were gone. My lady... I took her aside. I have no right to ask. I, I shouldn't ask. But I need your help. Here, she motioned, leading me to a prayer bench in a side chapel. She sat next to me and lowered the hood of her shawl. What's wrong, Hugh? This was very hard. I sought the right words to begin. Be certain. I would never speak to you of this unless it was the highest need. I know you serve your mistress with all your heart. She wrinkled her face. Please do not hesitate with me. Haven't I proven my trust for you enough? You have. Many times, I said. I took a breath and recounted the horror of my trip to St. Cecile. I told it in detail. The charred mounds, the eviscerated night, the most graphic images sticking in my throat like memories that did not want to come out. I told her of Adamar, whose similar fate I heard of at Baldwin's court. Both knights were slaughtered, their villages razed. Both had recently returned from the crusade, just as I had. Why do you tell this to me? She finally asked. You have not heard of such deeds? At court? Around the castle? No, they are vile. Why should I? Knights who disappear and return? Or talk a sacred relic from the Holy Land? Things more valuable than a simple fool like me would know. You are my only relic from the Holy Land, she smiled, trying to shift the mood. I could see her trying to put the puzzle together. Why these horrible murders? Why now? She took a wary breath. I did not know of any violence. Only that word had spread that Stephen had sent an advance guard to conduct his affairs before he returns. My blood lit. This guard, they are here? At the castle? I overheard the chattel and speaking with them with some contempt. He has served the Duke loyally for years, yet these men are charged with some horrid mission. He feels they're ill-trained for knights. Ill-trained? Beyond honor, he said. Owing no allegiance. He said it's fitting that they sleep with the pigs since they have the hearts of them. Why do you ask me this, Hugh? Emily looked into my eyes. I could see fear, and I felt horrible for causing it. These men are hunting for something, Emily. I do not know what. But your mistress? She is not innocent in this herself. These might be Stephen's men, but...
but Anne knows what they do. I cannot believe that, Emily shot up right. You say this is a matter more important than any in the world to you. I hear it in your voice. These things you describe, they are most vile. And if they are Stephen's work or Anne's, they will have to answer to God for what has been done. But why is this so urgent for you? Why do you put yourself at risk? It is not for Anne or Stephen, I said, swallowing. It's for my wife and child. I'm sure, Emily. Their killers are these same men. I leaned back, trying to let the pieces fit together in my mind. This guard, doing the Duke's bidding, they had come from the crusade, as had Adamar and Arnaud, and I. I must confront her, Emily said. If Anne is behind such acts, I cannot serve here any longer. You must not say a word. These men are vicious. They will kill without a thought to God's judgment. It is too late. Emily stared at me glassily. Her look was not anxious, but perplexed. The truth is, when you were away, Hugh, I may have seen something too. Chapter 67 Anne flinched in the maze of hedges under the balcony as she heard footsteps creeping up on her. A stealthy presence, most foul, like a shift in the wind. She turned and he was there. His frame was large, his face ruined with scars from battle, but it was not these things that made her shiver. It was his eyes, their remoteness, rigid, dark pools. His face was buried deep in his dark hood. On the hood, a small black cross. Not in church night, she scowled, her words stabbing with irony. Do not worry for me, his cold voice crept out from the drawn hood. I make peace with God in my own way. He came before her as a supplicant, yet he was possessed of the harshest cruelty. The tunic of a knight, but a disgraced one, dressed in rags. Still, she was forced to deal with him. I do worry for you, Morgane, Anne said scornfully, because I think you will burn in hell. Your methods are evil. They pervert the goal you aim to achieve. I may burn, lady, but I will light the way for others to rest next to God. Perhaps even you. Do not flatter yourself that you're God's agent, Anne sneered. You made my skin crawl that you do my husband's work. He bowed, unoffended. You need not bother with my work, madam. Just know that it goes well. I saw how well it goes, knight. I was there. There, madam? The knight's eyes narrowed. Saint Cecile, I saw what you did. Such cruelty even beasts from hell should find shame in. I saw how you left that town. It was left a better place than when we arrived. Closer to God. Closer to God? She stepped up to him, looked into his depthless eyes. The knight, Arnaud, I saw him flayed apart. He would not bend, my lady. And the children, they would not bend as well? Tell me, Morgane, for what precious prize did these innocents roast like cattle? Just this, the hooded knight said plainly. He reached under his cloak. His hand emerged with a small wooden cross at the size of his palm. He placed it gently in Anne's hand. Though she wanted to spit on it and hurl it far into the bushes, Anne's breath froze. 
It has journeyed far, my lady, this simple trinket, from Rome to Byzantium, a thousand years, and now you hold it here. For three hundred of them it slept in the coffin, the coffin of St. Paul himself, word of our Lord, until it was unearthed by Emperor Constantius. This cross has changed the tide of history. A smile crept across his face. That's why your prayers for me are not needed, good lady. Anne's hands trembled holding the relic. Her mouth went dry. My husband will no doubt be honored, she said. Yet, you know this is just the appetizer to what he hungers for. How does the real quest go? We are working. The dark knight nodded. You better work faster, knight. All the rest is just decoration. Even this piece is a bobble compared to the real prize. He is in Nimes, only days away. If Stephen finds you a feldom, it'll be your head we'll be looking at on the stake. Then I'll be smiling, lady, knowing that I have everlasting life. The smile will be mine, Morgane, most assuredly. Anne wrapped herself in her cloak and turned back to the castle, thinking of you rotting in hell. Chapter 68 I found no trace of the unholy soldiers I was seeking, or anyone who knew of mysterious knights in dark robes. Nor was I able to gain access to the barracks. Time was growing short. Stephen was due back at the castle in days. Once he returned, it would be too dangerous to press my case. Two days later, Emily took me aside as I was playing jackstraws with Anne's son, William. She saw my demeanor was glum. Do not be so sad, Jester, she said with a smile. I have a job for you, and a new pretext. There will be a celebration that evening in the Shadowlands Hall, she explained. A bachelor party. Gillis, the captain of the guard, was to be married in the next few days. There will be knights, soldiers, members of the guard, lots of speeches and drink. Their guard will be down, so to speak. I've arranged for you to be the entertainment, Emily announced. You seem to have a skill at this sort of thing, my lady. Once again, I owe you thanks. Thank me by finding what you seek, she said, and touched my hand. And, Hugh, be careful, please. That night there was lots of wine and awful singing. Gillis's buddies stood and made bold and mocking speeches until they slurred their words and fell back onto their benches. I was to be the last act before they dragged Gillis down to a brothel in town. I had to make them laugh, and yet my eyes kept searching for the rogue knights. I did sleight of hand tricks to warm them up, simple stuff Norbert had shown me, pulling objects out of tunics to their drunken awe. Then it was on to the jokes. I know this man, I announced, sliding to a stop on the tabletop in front of the groom-to-be, whose cock was permanently engorged. You flatter me, Gillis pretended to blush, but Joker, must you betray my secret to all? Try as he could, I went on. He could not get the damn thing to go down. Finally, he sought out his local apothecary. There, he encountered a stunning young woman. I'd like to speak to your father, the man with the problem said. My father is dead, she answered. I run this apothecary with my sister. Anything you could tell a man? You can tell us. All right, he agreed. In dire need, he pulled down his leggings. Look, I have a permanent erection, like a fucking horse. What can you give me for it? Hmm, 
the lady apothecary replied. Let me go and confer with my sister. After a minute, she returned with a small pouch and said, How's 100 gold coins and half the business? The room roared with laughter. Tell us more. I had begun another. The one about the priest and the talking crow went from outside the walls. A terrible shout pierced the celebration. There was a clop of horses drawn to a stop. Then once again, a man screamed. Please, God help me. I'm being killed. The drunken laughter ceased. Several of the party rushed to a window overlooking the courtyard. I followed close behind. Through the narrow opening, I saw two men dragging a third by the arms across the courtyard. I recognized them instantly. They wore slitted helmets and carried war swords strapped to their belts. It was just as Emily had described. They wore no armor but robes. On their feet were worn sandals. The prisoner hollered defiantly, his shouts for help echoing off the stone walls. Then I caught a look at his face. My own twisted in horror. It was the mayor of St. Cecile, who had stood up to Anne only days before. They dragged the poor man toward the keep. Who are these men? I asked one of the soldiers at my side. These dogs? The Duke's new business partners. Les Retournés. Retournés? I muttered. My eyes followed the soldiers and the poor mayor until they dragged him through a heavy wooden door and into the keep. The dying shouts of the prisoner faded into the night. Not our worry. Bertrand, the shadow inside. He stepped back from the window. Come, Gillis. Beauty's awaiting town. How about we get that blade of yours wiped one last time? Meanwhile, my heart was beating at a gallop. I had to talk to the mayor of St. Cecile. He might know why knights were being murdered and villages burned. And these awful killers. La Retournes. I thought I had seen them before. But where? Chapter 69. Nice. The following night, I waited until long after dark. Norbert lay snoring on his bed. I crept off my mat and tucked the knife under my leggings. I sneaked out of Norbert's chamber, hurrying up the back stairs behind the kitchen to the main floor. I had to traverse the entire castle from the long rooms of the court to the military end and talk my way past anyone who would stop me. Well, I was the jester after all. The halls were dark and drafty. Shadows danced on the wall from waning candle flames. I hurried past the huge doors of the great hall. A few knights still lounged at tables there, drinking, conversing, while others, too far gone, snored, curled up on their cloaks. Occasionally there was a guard, but no one stopped me. I was their lady's fool. The castle was a squared-off U-shape, with a legia of stone arches around the courtyard. Across from it were the duke's garrison, the officer's quarters, the barracks, and the keep. I successfully wound my way around the entire main floor. As I passed outside, I saw the tower above me where the mysterious knights had dragged their prisoner, lit up by the moon. I hurried that way, then slipped inside. I was in the tower all right, but I didn't know where to go or who might try to stop me. My stomach churned, the breath clung tight in my chest. A draft followed me up the stairs. At each floor, the odor grew more foul. The smell of death I knew all too well. On the third landing, two guards slouched around an open archway. One was tall and lazy looking, the other short and squat with mean eyes. 
Not exactly the Duke's crack troops, I thought. Just keeping an eye on a few cursed souls in the middle of the night. Are you lost, Strawberry? The mean-looking one growled at me. Never been up here before, I said. Mind if I take a quick peek? Tour's over, he stood up. Go back the way you came. I went up to him, my eyes wide, as if yanking something out of his ear. From my closed fist, I produced a long silk scarf. Come on. Even a damn soul could use a last laugh. To my delight, the oaf reached out and felt the scarf. Then he took it, my bribe for him. He looked down the hall and, finding the coast clear, stuffed it into his uniform. One look, he said. There's nothing in there anyway but the pox. Then juggle your ass back where you belong. Thank you, sire, I clucked. A lifetime of stiff manhood to you. I darted through the archway behind him and up the stairs. A row of narrow stone cells stretched out before me. The putrid stink made me hold my breath. I hoped the man I was seeking was in there. I hoped the mayor of St. Cecile was still alive. Chapter 70 I crept inside the hellhole. The prison was dank and humid. A flickering torch spat its dim light on a row of narrow cells. They were barely four feet high, enclosed by rusted iron bars, tight as coffins. Prisoners crawled on the floor like dogs. Driven by the awful smell of my worry that the guards would come, I hurried down the row of cells, searching for the man I had seen dragged in the night before. I prayed he was still here. In the first cell, a man with a long, dark beard, naked, barely more than a skeleton, lay on his back amidst his own waist. In the next, a large, dark-skinned man, swarthy as a Turk, crawled under a tattered white robe. Neither raised an eye. The cells reeked. A rat licked the inside of a bowl right in front of me. The next cell, the third, contained the person I was seeking, the mayor of St. Cecile. The poor man lay crumpled in a ball, with blotches of blood and bruises on his arms and face. To my alarm, I could not tell if he was alive or dead. Sir, I crept close. I had to know. What did these dark knights want? What had they raised his entire village to find? What treasure was worth so many lives? I crept up close to his cell. Please, I whispered again, almost begging. Would he recognize me? Would he speak or call out? Suddenly, a whimpering moan from the next cell caught my attention. I stepped over and saw a pathetic creature. A woman, her skin as white as a ghost, her hair dry as rotted hemp, muttering under her breath like a deranged witch. Her skin was spotted with oozing sores. I cringed. What a sight. What heresy had she done to be left to rot away like this? I turned back to the mayor. Time was short. Do you remember me, sir? I saw you in St. Cecile, I whispered. But the witch's muttering grew louder. I shushed her to stop. Then a jolt froze my body. The words she moaned, at first softly, almost inaudibly, into her bony hands. Then louder. My God, I could not believe what I was hearing. A maiden met a wandering man in light of the moon's pure cheer. 916-633-1537 Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com Ratchet Book Club on Twitter Ratchet Book Club on Facebook Leave a review on uh, Spotify You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts 
thank you to everybody who's been listening there. I really do appreciate it. Um, you can also leave a review on Podchaser and on the Good Pods app. You can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app. You can leave a tip in the tip jar. Thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to at you later. Peace. to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my name, did you say?